Welcome to Tim Stodds FM, a place to share new ideas, speak freely, and continuously find ways to live our best lives. And now your host, Tim Stoddart. What's up, everybody? My name is Tim Stoddart. Welcome to Tim Stodds FM. Thank you so much for joining me. I am recording this intro from the Fort Lauderdale Airport. I know it's a little bit rough, but I'm dying to get this episode out to you because it is by far my favorite episode that I've ever recorded and have ever published. My guest this week is my good, good friend, Ray Gilbo. Ray is the founder of 8 and 9 Clothing Company. He has been running a top, top streetwear line for the past 16 years. He's always been at the top of the game. He has so much insight as to what it takes to run a successful apparel line and really just a successful operation of of any kinds. Ray is one of those people that would just succeed in anything that he does because he has the mindset and he has the leadership capabilities that it takes to really build a team and build a family around him. Uh, He's one of my favorite people. I've learned so much from him. He basically taught me everything that I know about the apparel line, which helped me kind of launch my own t-shirt company. And more than that, he's just an amazing human. Uh, We talked about some of the charity work and the nonprofit work that he's doing, which is really like, which is really groundbreaking in in what he's bringing to uh, the at-risk community. So I, I could ramble about all day how much respect I have for Ray, but let's just get right into the episode. So please help me welcome my good friend, Ray Gilbo. What's up, Ray? Thank you so much for coming, man. Hey, thanks for having me. I have been telling, and no joke, I've been telling my friends and my girl and a bunch of people about uh, this interview and how if there's one podcast that I've listened to or that I've created so far um, that they should listen to, it'd be this one. Um, I've really been talking you up because you know how much I appreciate you as a friend and as uh, somebody that I've I've worked with a lot over the last couple of years. I know that you've got interviewed and have to do a, a ton of videos and we're just kind of going to get through this because I know it's probably not your least favorite thing to talk about. Um, so please go through like the standard intro pitch that you've done a million times. Just tell people who you are, uh, the, the company, how you guys got started, just to give a little bit of an introduction. Well, I'm blushing. <laughs> Thank you. And congratulations, by the way. Thanks, Speaking man. of your girlfriend. Thank you, fiance. Oh, your fiance. I know, there it's you weird. Go. Hey, you got to switch it over, man. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my name is Ray Gilbo. I am the founder, CEO, CFO, CMO, creative director of 8 and 9 Clothing. Um, I've been at it for about 17 years. Worked really hard. I've had a little bit of success, and I've been able to do some consulting and you know, kind of pass that along to to other businesses and you know, take them on as clients and develop those brands. So that's that's the new chapter that I'm in, um, selling clothes and building brands. Why? A question that I've never actually got to ask you is why clothes? Were you always into fashion when you were growing up, or was there something specific about the streetwear that kind of caught your interest? I I got the feeling. And this is just an assumption I made that you were really a sneaker fan before you were anything else. And you saw like an opportunity to create clothes that match sneakers. Can you like recall where that all came from? I definitely saw an opportunity to create clothes that match sneakers. But as far as fashion and just my upbringing, mm-hmm. I was always an outsider on fashion because we didn't have any. Um, Likewise. Like my, I remember my best friend like got a pair of Z Cavricis one time. 
And I was like, fuck, dude, I need some Z Cavaricis. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, I, I just, we didn't have things like that. My parents, um, you know, had a different set of priorities and they wanted to make sure that, yeah. you know, I could, you know, pay to be on my hockey team. And uh, I had to split the purchase of my skates with them. I had to yes. mow a lot of lawns to get my skates. But I was always able to play sports um, and do other things. So we didn't have fashion. I had very young parents. Um, no I way, actually, so did I. Yeah. My parents were eight, 18 and 19 when I was born. Yeah, me too. Yep. And my, my mother actually didn't graduate high school. My father was going to college at the time. So they were actually, they met, they were working at Burger King to to put him through school. And, you know, they were kind of investing in him so that he could you know, build and grow. But anyway, when you have a young family, sometimes you don't have disposable cash. So I didn't have any fashion. Um, I didn't get brand name sneakers. I, I remember, you know, I think back then we, we would get like, you know, like a hundred bucks to do all our back to school shopping. And at Kmart, right? I mean, dude, we had fucking Zares, we had Ames, but one year I graduated to Marshall's, right? So I'm like, I'm going to so get, get some fucking brand name <laughs> shit this year. And I remember I went there and I had saved up some money that summer. And uh, I don't even know how old this, I got to be in like, maybe eighth grade seventh grade or something this is like the first time i'm talking about brand name shoes and i got a pair of reebok black top pumps which was like the shit because d brown you know had dunked in the reebok pumps and, mm -hmm. and i had to get like you know the gray pair that like nobody wanted so it hit marshall's but didn't matter i had a pair of pumps and then there was a pair of black filas that were suede that i was able to get i think two for 80 or like two for 70 it's like dude give me my fucking two pair of shoes for 70 80 bucks and then i put a little bit of money on top of that and uh, that was my back to school shopping. So I got two pair of brand name shoes. And uh, somewhere along the way, my mom bought me my first polo sweatshirt from the gas station. And it was, uh, it was pretty fucking amazing. I had a white polo shirt with, a, with like a horse that was facing backwards. And uh, that was it. So that was, my, that was my first quote unquote brand name shirt, the bootleg polo from the gas station. And um, one time she actually bought me a pair of guest jeans. That was fucking amazing. I got them for Christmas. But it turned out that the the logo on the back pocket it was wrong. It was red. Yeah, I think they were supposed to be green. <laughs> yeah. Like the male version was green. I had the red ones, but I didn't know. Um, I'm not going to talk about what happened when I went to school. That would be just a little embarrassing. Absolutely. But um, yeah, so that's where I started, man. That was my fashion experience. It came from you know the bootleg polo sweatshirt at the gas station, the fucking asexual guest jeans, mm -hmm. and uh, and my two pair of shoes from from Marshalls. But finally, once you know, I, I got out of my parents' house. I went to college. Um, I had actually moved to New York and, you know, fashion there, I feel like was like a little more, you know, pre like prevalent and I was in college. So I wanted to, you know, get all the girls and look cool. Um, so I got into sneakers and that, is that where you met figs. That's where I met figs. Yeah. So, um, it was, it kind of started from the fact that I, I had always wanted to buy sneakers. Um, and then, you know, but through high school, I started making my own money and I got a couple pair of Adidas and, and things like that. But I really wanted to get Jordans and, I started buying some. I was working hard, going to school, and uh, once I started buying Jordans, it kind of didn't stop. And then Figs and I would just, you know, hit up all the sneaker releases. And at that same time, we like got into to selling sneakers. Um, and this is when we were. It was it was crazy. We actually started importing jerseys from overseas. This is like when you know the very 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 beginning of people starting to wear throwbacks and match their sneakers to the jerseys. So we got into that business. We were importing sneakers and and jerseys and different things from China. We were wholesaling them um, at a time when people couldn't get different color sneakers um, or Nike wasn't necessarily making everything. So I got into fashion as um, as a business 
specifically to serve like one customer like the guy you know in new york that was wearing jerseys and sneakers that's who i wanted to sell stuff to so we would we would bring it in we would wholesale it to different accounts and then you know because we were selling to certain types of stores we said hey man we could get our own fucking store so we got a store a little baby store i think in the in the portchester flea market it was like the first store that we got and this is in the 90s yeah. so whatever so we had this little store selling jerseys mixtapes like sneakers whatever you need to be you know fresh in the it's street. interesting watching you talk about it because i remember one of the first um one of the first offices we had we would say we need to remember this because one day this is actually going to like turn into work and just watching you say it and kind of reliving the memories you can see in your mind it seems like that was a really really like positive time in your life yeah we were unstoppable yeah like i was you know I'm, I'm in school i'm working 40 hours a week i was managing a bar and uh you know making money hustling and then i got this new sneaker thing so like i got a full-time job i'm going to school i'm hustling i'm selling sneakers i'm opening a store mm -hmm. this is fucking amazing it's great right? um so that led to me you know uh you know buying a motorcycle showing off yeah. buying sneakers that match my motorcycle so how did you get from how did you get from turning into like quote-unquote just hustle mentality and actually taking that next step into like a, a bona fide business with national distribution so we were hustling and we were hustling sneakers hustling jerseys i actually ended up moving to miami with my college roommate at the time i moved to miami i went to um for a semester um and then i kind of looked for the same opportunities that we had there i wanted to build a network and be able to wholesale the things mm -hmm. that we were importing um down here in south florida um the same way figs was in new york so he kept his accounts in new york he had his store we put a worker in there and then i came to miami and i was you know wholesaling sneakers and jerseys and at one point one of our accounts one of the people that i was wholesaling to had had bit off a little bit more than he could chew and he racked up a nice little tab for himself and some things had kind of gone wrong for him in business and he wasn't able to pay his debt. And I don't know at the time, maybe it was, who knows, like 10 grand, 12 grand. It was nothing crazy. Um, but it got to the point where, you know, as, a, as him being a gentleman and realizing he couldn't get himself out of the situation, he gave me the store to pay off his debt. So I actually got my first store in Miami because a customer that I was wholesaling to couldn't pay their bills. Wow. So yeah, so lucky for me, he was he was a gentleman about it and we were able to, you know, work it out in like a positive way. I didn't have to take a loss. I acquired a store. Yeah. Um and we started just fucking killing it. Yeah. So then I was really hustling, but it was more like hustling on our own. And this is a day people buying like five, six, seven, eight hundred dollar outfits. Um so yeah, we had a really, really, really good run with that store. And then I opened a couple more stores. And then somewhere in that process... And this is all in, in Miami, right? Yeah, and then somewhere in that process, I, I just kind of realized, you know, we're customizing clothes, we're importing clothes, so we're really curating, you know, the style um, that, that people are gravitating towards. Um, so why wouldn't I put my own why wouldn't I put my own product you know into that mix? Absolutely. Um, and I think at that point we started selling to like fabulous. Okay, hold on. So without... Sorry to cut you off. This was before you even had your own brand. Yeah, this is like... It's kind of moving like all like at the same time a little bit. Just because, sort of getting there. Yeah, like when some I came to mold. Miami, I, I was just using you know the business that I had, which was wholesaling. Yeah. But at the same time, I was um, you know, realizing that we have an audience, and I had just started selling to to like you know to rappers through Miami. In in New York, it was like we would sell to a store, they would sell to the rappers. So you would see like a lot of our products, especially the sneakers, mm -hmm. you know, in music videos. And now it was like where we were the store. 
So we were really touching the artists. And you know, back then I had my store in USA Flea Market, and it was like, if you come to Miami, you gotta go to USA Flea Market just to make sure your respect level is high. So that made, you know, Cameron, Fabulous, like all these rappers that, you know, were fashionable were coming to the flea market to kind of, you know, show their face and then, you know, go shopping or whatever. Um, so we're selling clothes to rappers and I'm like, well, this is kind of silly. I'm customizing clothes and selling it to rappers, but it doesn't have a brand on it. Um, and then at that time I had seen, you know, eight and nine and it just kind of all, all sparked. And I was like, I'm going to just start a clothing line. What do you mean you've seen eight and nine? I had, I had, I was, you know, shopping at Michael's one time, like looking for things to customize clothes, different patches. And I actually saw the numbers hanging on a, a display together. It was like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It was, they were there and it just looked cool. And, uh, and that's how you got it. Yeah. So I bought the patches, the eight, the and, and the nine. Yep. And, um, they were white on white, you know, little felt edges with thread in the middle. And I think back then I was wearing like two t-shirts at the same time all the time. So I have like a blue t-shirt under my white t-shirt and you can see the sleeve <laughs> yeah. poking out. So I put the patches on the sleeve of my t-shirt and then, uh, you know, I colored the thread to like match so that I could have like a red, white, and blue shirt probably to match my Sixers hat. Yeah. You know, I was wearing a lot of Philly stuff Absolutely. back then. Um, so yeah, big Allen Iverson fan. Um, well, I was just going to say that everyone was wearing Philly stuff back then yeah, because of AI. It was great. Yeah, I think, he, great I think he had his own sneaker line too, right? The he, Iversons? He did with they Reebok. They did really well, yeah. Yeah, and they came back and they actually had a little run this year. Um, but yeah, man, so I was just, I was hustling and I knew that we were selling unbranded merchandise to, to our customers and it would just be smarter for me to make a clothing Let's line. put a brand behind yeah, it. Yeah, so I called Figs and was like, yeah, we're going to make a clothing line. So clearly you can tell from that whole long story that I had no fashion experience. I didn't grow up, uh, you know, fashionable to the point where, um, you know, I had touched a lot of different products. So it was it was really kind of discovery and trial and error. Um, and I never started the way everybody else does, which is like, okay, let me print one T-shirt and sell it and then go print more T-shirts. I had the, uh, you know, the ambition to think that we could like compete with Sean John and Echo like right away. So I took all this money that I had saved and accumulated over the years from the things that we were doing and I just put it into this big ass production in Pakistan and we made everything from scratch, full line, men's, women's, hoodies, jeans, accessories, really fucking stupid in all in in, in hindsight. Um because we didn't test anything. We didn't like try anything we didn't know if people even gave one but you fuck. were just like too dumb to know better at the no time, i had right? too much balls yeah it had nothing <laughs> like, to do with stupidity okay it wasn't a stupid decision it was just it was just overly ambitious in hindsight huh. um did and it pay off it it did and it didn't it, it didn't pay off because i had a really simple plan i was gonna you know whatever the numbers are but you take fifty thousand dollars you put it into product you wholesale it with good margins you get back one hundred twenty five thousand. Then you put the 125000 in, and you come back with like 300000 mm-hmm. I'm going to do this in 90 days. Fuck that. I'm out. I'm rich, bitch. Yeah. I'm out. <laughs> so it was really good plan in my head, but there was just too many variables. And at that time, September 11th happened, and I couldn't get my goods out of Pakistan. I remember you telling me that. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, September 11th happened. I couldn't get my goods. I couldn't ship my orders. So to save face, I had to cancel them and kind of get out in front of the problem. Um, but anyway, had... I've been able to get the goods out of Pakistan, I would have sold them. Then you would have made your company. I would have had the money yeah. and I would have did it again. But, you know, what the hell did I know about like how terrorism impacts like the fucking global economy and my ability to get mm-hmm. things through customs? I didn't, I had no even inclination that something like that could ever even occur. I was only worried that 
they weren't going to send me clothes. They would send me like a hundred boxes of chickens or something. And I would have paid and been out of my money. So would you um, have told that Ray to be more patient or would you have told him to do exactly what he did? Knowing what you know now. I would have did it the same way. I think I, I would have did too. it the same way because I mean, you just, you just don't get anything by playing it safe. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's easy for me to sit here and say if I had made one T-shirt, I would have sold it, and then we would have made more T-shirts, and we could have grown that way. But if we made T-shirts, we'd have been just like anybody else. Just another T-shirt company. Yeah, everybody can yeah. screen print a T-shirt. Yeah, um, I know. I'm aware. Yeah, so it's true. Like, literally, <laughs> anybody can screen print a T-shirt. So um, I also don't think my team uh, – we had a, a designer that was a graphic designer, but he was you know, very um, – very proficient with Photoshop and just layers and filters and all of these. You talking things. about the designer that you referred me to when I first started my line? Um, probably not. This okay. is a good a good friend of mine that I went to high school with. Um, and obviously, you know, the first step to starting a business is to, I mean, obviously after the idea, but you have to analyze the people that are around you and figure out how you're going to build a team. Who are you going to put in what position? Who's going to play what role? So I reached out to the only person I knew that went to art school. And, uh, you know, although he was an amazingly talented graphic designer and he's a super, super, super talented artist that's having huge success right now, he just didn't know how to design graphics for screen printing. Okay. So it's easy for me to say I shouldn't have gone to Pakistan. I should have printed t-shirts. Well, guess what? The designer we had didn't even know how to fucking design graphics for screen printing. Yeah. You know, because it's separation. So that was your best option. It wasn't even that I was really aware of that. We just, we didn't realize that we weren't really, you know, adept at designing shirts for screen printing until we started sending them to various factories that kept fucking them up and they would come back and look like trash and what was basically happening is they would have to do transfer prints because there were so many different levels and colors and everything in the graphics that you physically couldn't screen print it like screen print is limited at best to like 14 colors yeah so you know that's a lot i mean it's at best yeah um but yeah that's not ideal one two colors that's what made screen printing what it is um but we just weren't designing like that. So, yeah, it's easy for me to say I should have made T-shirts, but we didn't even have the team that could do that. So we did take the uh, the best path or approach for, for our resources. Okay. So if it wasn't – or maybe it was. Maybe you're telling me that you kind of grew into it. But if it wasn't the actual idea of, like, fashion and the art behind fashion that got you involved with this, then what was it? Like, what was the thing that, that really got your juices flowing so that you could keep coming with that kind of – passion to grow in your business that i know that you had i was successful at small to middle-sized retail and that's cool if you want to have like a couple workers one makes 50 grand running the store you got a couple guys that make 30 grand and that's the end of that so you know your your annual salary might you might be paying out 100 grand a year or something how do you provide more jobs open more stores you can't really scale that way so then i have to get you know whatever 20 stores to have, you know, $2 million in salaries that we're paying out or something like that. Yeah. Um, I was just motivated by being able to obviously make more money for myself, but being able to provide bigger, better paying jobs for the people that were around me and then grow and do that more. And I just thought it was, uh, for the amount of effort it takes, I thought it was just smarter to go into a business where you can make a lot more money. And at that time, these brands, you know, were making three, four hundred million dollars a year, grossing three, four hundred million dollars a year. One year, Echo did like one point two billion dollars. That's out of control. That's what I'm saying. So what do you, you know, 
If you're gonna he put all your effort genius, in time, so. he was. Yeah, Mark Echo was really revolutionary, and I think Sean John probably just like fell into the path that he already carved because nobody. And please elaborate on this because you know more about it than I do. But I don't think before Mark Arco, anybody took like the idea of entrepreneurship and incorporated it into like their line. Like when I think of Mark Echo, I actually think of him. I think of the guy. I don't necessarily think of the clothes that he makes. It was more the the persona that he had. And it was the first time that I actually watched interviews of a designer. You know, it was, it, he had like a real personality. And I think after him, you saw whether it was the designer or the CEO or whoever was like the name behind the brand being in front of the brand and like representing it. Yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it because now that's essential. It's, uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. We right. were just having that same conversation with, uh, but before we went on air with, I forget what you said his name was, but the guy with LiveFit, yeah, and Randall you were talking Pitch. about um, uh, you were talking about the hundreds, yep, and uh, what 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 he does because he basically is the brand in front of the brand, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's Bobby Hundreds, and it's is ben that actually too. his name? I mean, no, Bobby and Ben Hundreds like the Ramones, like you know, uh, it's not their fucking yeah, name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that would be so cool if it was. <laughs> yeah, no, they were actually both lawyers. Um, well, his brother, Ben, was an actual attorney, I believe. And then Bobby, I think, quit wow. in law school, um, which is funny, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I think Mark was kind of that guy. But he was also, he was a little bit ahead of his time. But he, like you said, he was like the designer that was the face of the brand. Whereas all the other urban brands at that time were, you know, a rapper or, you know, something like that. You had Fat Farm, you had Russell, then you had... I mean, obviously, Sean John, Rockaware, like all those things came, but they were so celebrity driven. Yeah, I feel like the brand made Echo a celeb, made Mark a celebrity. Exactly. Um, exactly. Which is really, which is really cool. So, yeah. So for me, I'm just looking at this like, all right, well, I can sell a couple hundred thousand dollars in this store, or I can go make a clothing line and sell it to many stores and make hundreds of millions. And that's where my head was at. I was trying to make hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. I haven't gotten there yet. So. Hmm. There's just a lot of different directions that I feel like I could, because I've never had these conversations with you. We've talked about like the business aspect of it. And I think that it's important that we, that we get there because I want to make sure that we tell the story of your journey. So let me backtrack a little. You start your own brand. Where did the concept of sneaker match come from? Did you just kind of jump in because that was what was going into the time? Or was that something that you knew ahead of time? Like that's where I want to be because I feel a certain way about it. So everything I just and spoke please explain about what like, that means. Yeah, so please explain what I just spoke means. about was probably like two thousand one, two thousand two, and then so that whole that era was like two thousand one, two thousand two. We took this loss in Pakistan. It completely changed our business model. So our plan was wholesale, make money, do it again, and quick flip. So basically, get the goods in, get them gone to these stores, and then do it over and over again. That was the that was the model. And once we couldn't get the goods out of Pakistan, they started coming piece by piece. So in business, you need cash, you need capital to move. We had an office, we had other things that were probably a little, you know, premature, but um, we had to keep those things going. We had, you know, bills to pay. We had, um, you know, people that were depending on us already, you know, designers got to get money, things got to happen. So when the goods would come through customs, we would have like size medium, but we wouldn't have large or extra large. So we couldn't sell to the stores. So we had to sell this shit hand to hand. So now it's like, all right, who's in my phone? That's a size medium. Call him. He's better buy a hoodie today. So we had to really go direct to consumer 
which was never our plan in the first place. We were just trying to sell to these stores like how everybody else was doing back then. So what happened is we ended up by any means necessary selling these clothes, like literally out of our house, out of our trunk. Then we started doing what what you would consider now a pop-up shop. So our, you know, we had friends that were DJs, you know, rappers, promoters, and we were doing a lot of different lifestyle things. So we would kind of create this spectacle at a club. And the whole plan was very simple. Like what we need a venue. How do we get a venue? Well, to get a venue, you need the money or you need value. So we didn't really have money. We only had clothes. The idea was to sell the clothes to get money. And since you can't trade clothes for a venue, I mean, what the fuck do you do? So I came up with this bright idea that nightclubs don't do shit during the day. There's some guy in there. In my mind, there's like a guy in there. He's like putting trash bags in a trash can. Absolutely. He's like mopping around. Absolutely. Just bullshitting, you know? Mm-hmm. So I've started figuring out that we could bring value to the club by making the money during the day at a minimum cost. So I'm like, all right, a bar back and a bartender. What the fuck is that going to cost you? I got DJs. You got sound already. So all right, 150 bucks for your bar back and your bartender. That's what your guarantee. That's what your opening cost is. Mm-hmm. So as long as I can get you to break even on that, then you have an opportunity to start making money. So I would tell these club owners, look, man, you know, so and so DJ Jarrah's, you know, playing your club tonight. You know, you got him opening up at. You got an opener at nine o'clock. Well, let me get the venue from two to nine. We're going to do this pop-up shop. We're going to sell clothes. And everybody that comes and spends 100 bucks, we're going to let them come back to the club tonight for free. And I'll pay you for that entry. So we were able to kind of convince club owners this was a good idea. And we would go in there. We would throw like a party in the daytime, make it a big spectacle, and sell clothes. And then we did this a bunch of times. So we were doing pop-up shops basically in the club. And I forget what the point of this story was. What was the question that we well, were Well, we were talking about how it got to sneaker match, but Oh, right. But so that's okay no, because because this is important because so we were this is the type of business we were running. We were just selling like hand to hand. And this is through the 2000s. Mm-hmm. So it got to the point where we didn't have we had exhausted all of our options. Like we now ran out of sizes. We couldn't do any more pop-ups. So to keep the revenue flowing, we had to use everything that was at our disposal. And at that point it was just skills. And it costs a lot of money to go back into production. So, you know, you're paying out, you're selling, but you're really just on a treadmill. So how the fuck am I going to get 50 grand to go back to a major production? We really didn't have any way to do that because we just couldn't, we didn't have the inventory to sell enough at one time to do it that way. So we started offering our creative services, which at first we were doing like, you know, famous rapper. We want to partner with you so we can get our logo on your mixtape. All right, well, how are we going to do that? Sometimes you give them clothes and it works. Sometimes they don't even have their album cover is going to be so shitty that you don't even want your logo on it. So you're like, oh, fuck you, man. I'll design your album cover. I'll put my own logo on it. You wear these clothes in the picture. And then it started as like a way for us to get our logo out there and align ourselves with these artists. We were just kind of like offering free design work, basically. And then it was like, all right, well, I don't even like this artist and I don't want my logo on his mixtape, but I'll take the 150 bucks to design his cover. And then next thing you know, we got relationships with club owners. We got a lot of DJs. We got rappers. So it's like design flyers, design covers, design whatever yeah. the fuck we can design. Back then, people were rapping cars. We were designing car wraps like crazy. So anyway, we just we we really were eight and nine designs at that point because we weren't eight and nine clothing. We didn't even have apparel. Wow. So that's how we started as an agency. So through 2000, probably two, three, four, five, six, we're operating strictly as an agency. Like We didn't even have clothes to sell that whole time. And- we would do crazy shit too, like go to the club, say eight and nine, get in free, or go to the club, get two free drinks. Like we were just doing anything we could to keep our name out there 
moving around in the culture and get people to say, what is eight and nine? Because we didn't have any resources to make more clothes. So fast forward, my flea market businesses are doing pretty good. I make this amazing fucking next level maneuver and I get a store on South Beach. My rent's like 7500 bucks a month. We're big time, man. We're out here at South Beach. Uh-huh. We're going to be fucking rich again. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> this is like 2007. So, I mean, shit, I went from the flea market to South Beach. It was like a major come up. Yeah. I'm on the other side You're of the bridge You're right, story. Oh, man, it was, it was unbelievable. So, we're out there on South Beach. And, uh, you know, we got the store. We're doing the same thing now. I feel like I'm having deja vu. We're selling other brands. Rappers are coming in. They're buying shit that's not ours. I'm like, I got to get money. And then you caught the itch to do your own thing. I mean, I was already doing it, but it was just the time. That was when all the stars had aligned to really go back to production. Mm-hmm. So I said to Figs, I said, Figs, man, we're, you know, we're, I got this store on the beach. It's my, you know, it's, it's costing a shit ton of money. We're not selling eight and nine. This is fucking retarded. We got to get back in. I'm like, what are we going to do? And by that time, Figs and I had racked up like hundreds of pairs of shoes, like each. Like he might have, I was at like 250, 300. And this is when Jordans were like worth real money. Yes. You know, I got, you know, probably 50 pair of shoes at this time that are worth over 500 bucks. So I'm like, that's probably, un- that's probably an understatement, honestly. I probably had 50 pair of shoes that were worth over $750 and another 50 worth over 500. So I'm like, yo, Figs, we got to do something, man. And, we, and him and I agreed that we were going to take our sneakers and sell some of them to make more t-shirts. So that's, this is when Sneaker Match became the no-brainer because nobody was serving the market so i got a store people are coming in there every day yo i want to match my sneakers and i'm buying from other people who don't even know that their shirt matches a certain sneaker but we're styling it we're merchandising it we're putting it on the mannequin so people can see how to wear it you're being intentional about it right so yeah deliberate i guess so we were like all right nobody's really servicing this market and people always dress from the feet up that's like the number one rule like you start with your feet and then you figure out how to make your sneaker look good so I was like, fuck this. We're going to make people's sneakers look good. And that was where we got into the sneaker match. So it was like, all right, we're so deep in this culture. We're matching our sneakers every day. So that's the need. People need to make their sneakers look better. Let's give them clothes that are going to do that. Um, so we sold our sneakers. And I don't remember what the first number was. I want to say like five grand. I think we each sold like $2,500 worth of our sneakers. We took this five grand. We made a bunch of shirts. I put them in my store. And then we took them to SneakerCon. And this is how we started getting involved with the sneaker shows because it was like, all right, well, where's our customer? Well, he's right here. He's at fucking SneakerCon. Mm-hmm. And uh, it might have even been Dunk Exchange. SneakerCon's a convention, by the way, for people listening. It's a, it's a, is it worldwide? I think it's worldwide, yeah, right? They're, they're worldwide. They're huge. They're, the, they're yeah. the largest or most successful sneaker show in the world. And you go there to buy, sell, and trade sneakers. Okay. So the business of buying, selling, and trading sneakers is done at SneakerCon. So, you know, you got a couple thousand kids in there and, you know, all of our peers are in there looking for exclusive sneakers. Like the internet was there, but it wasn't what it is today. Yeah. So like if you, the the discovery of putting an effort to go find sneakers that other people didn't have and then putting them on and wearing them was like, this was like the height. Um, so you had this, you know, marketplace essentially where you could go find exclusive sneakers and then really buy them from another human, like at a fair price. You could negotiate, you can take your old shoes and trade him something, you know, like mm-hmm. the business was really being done there. So we went to SneakerCon with a really simple philosophy. We're going to bring six sne- t-shirts that we paid for with our sneaker collections. And those six t-shirts are going to match the six Jordans that come out next. We go to the show, we sell shirts, we take that money, we make more shirts. 
and how we started to accelerate our flip and our ability to grow is that every time we would flip a batch of t-shirts and make say two grand we would match it with two grand from selling our sneakers okay so then we could instead of putting four two grand back we're putting four grand back so we did that for you know shit like probably two years wow selling between my stores um the sneaker shows and then obviously at this point people are taking a notice to what we're doing and other you know stores are coming to us and saying hey we want to carry your product too um and at that point it was like all right I don't have to sell my sneakers anymore. This flip and these t-shirts and the profit is going back in. It's it's getting reinvested and we're able to make more shirts. And this store in South Beach is fucking annoying. It's like my front door smells like piss every day. My yeah. AC bill is $1,000. Like I'm fucking over this shit. And I just closed the store on the beach and focused way more on the line. And that is when we really were able to grow. So the sneaker match really came out of uh, a need that we were trying to fulfill for ourselves and then obviously for our customers. And that's why our customers are sneakerheads. Do you think that people relied too much on the internet? Because the last 10 minutes of you talking and what the experiences you had that led to you being able to get 8 and 9 to where it was, it's, I mean, it was all person-to-person relationships. How can I serve you? How can we provide this mutually beneficial relationship that you were talking about with the club owners? Um, how can you work directly with the customer, going to conventions and, and actually meeting your customer face-to-face? And I don't know. I think if somebody were to start, uh, to start an apparel business these days, they wouldn't even think of that. They would think, we need a website, we need an Instagram account, and that's really it. Everything that we're going to do is going to come off digital branding. And listening to you, I don't know if, if that is necessarily the case. I think you have experience on kind of both sides of it, where you've seen the world of really person-to-person networking and relations and and getting to know your customer, like actually getting to know him or her, like shaking their hand and, and shit like that. And you've seen the side where everything is just done digitally. What do you think? One, do you think that people rely too much on the internet? And two, which one do you think is like a more sustainable model? Yes, people rely too much on the internet because if you were going to start a clothing line right now, yes, you would set up all your digital assets. And then yeah. the first thing you would do unfortunately most people would do is get a bot so they can get some followers and then they would have a bot getting them followers and then the ones that are really smart would be like oh this looks too automated i need to leave more organic comments looks too and they get a bot to leave fucking comments comments. yeah so it's great so you're now putting fake effort into other people's persona i always say that that's making the internet a worse place it makes it a worse place but fundamentally People have a character, and you can see the level of characterness or ism that people have based on first things first. What is their Instagram name? Tim Stoddart or Ray Gilbo are uh-huh. going to be much more authentic than Eagle Man 954. Yeah. So when we go, did you just look at that eagle when <laughs> yeah. you came up with that? I was like, Eagle Man. I was like, Oh shit, there's a giant eagle. And if I if I knew me. the zip code to Boca, it would have been that. But five six one. But um, yeah, I just knew I was north of Miami, so I saw the eagle. Nine five four is Broward, so clearly this is Eagle Man nine five four. By the way, there's a huge fucking ghost face killer eagle right it's here. Edward. Um, it's Edward the eagle. Edward. Yeah, it's amazing. It's definitely 
the size of Ghostface's armband. Yeah, it's a big ass eagle. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so people rely too much on the internet, and for us, like we're men of character, and yeah. people, I think, appreciate that, and they see the sincerity and the authenticity. In, I think they do too. In everybody on my team, like we're all the same. Yeah, um, just really like-minded people. Um, we treat people similarly. We, you know, act a certain type of way and we kind of expect a certain level of respect. We command it, we earn it, um, but then we exchange it, you know, yeah. as we interact with people. Um, so I think people do rely too much on the internet, but I also think there's a level of authenticity that you can never get across on the internet. So we still spend, I, I, if I had to guess, man, like thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year maybe just on travel to SneakerCon. We've done every single sneaker con show. I can't remember a single one that you've missed. We've done we we've done them all until this year. We did every sneaker con show in the history of sneaker con. Wow, that's why like you know Alan, the owner of sneaker con, like that's my brother. Like I never see him because Figs does all the shows, but this is our family for real. Like we've been there to build their business. They've built our business. You know, just so much you know mutual benefit that we've had from working together for so many years. Um, but I say that because. We talk about this expense and we analyze it all the time. Dude, $40,000 a year. Say it's 30, that's $2,500 a month. You know how many people hit me up every day to get the fucking 10X ROI on my digital marketing fucking yeah. budget? $2,500. Well, I could turn that into what? 7,500, 10 grand every month, allegedly by doing paid advertising. Um, so fuck you. We're going to SneakerCon. We're shaking hands with our customers. Um, and then those real people follow us on Instagram. And they know figs. They know them from you know being there at the shows and being a part of the culture and contributing. So to the you're culture. under the mindset that, and I'm under this same mindset. So I, it's kind of a leading question, I guess, but it's intentional. I always tell the people that you can't get too caught up in what in, in the 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 mystique behind digital marketing because I see a lot of SEO companies and internet marketing companies and they present these reports with these real fancy graphs and they use all these silly words that don't even really mean anything. Um, and they just make it seem like it's this, this secret, like masterful science when in reality, the internet is nothing but another line of communication between people. That's all it is. It's just people interacting with people. So I've always thought that if you can do that and do it with authenticity, like you said, you're still creating the same emotional response that you would if you're at SneakerCon and you meet somebody and you shake their hand. So like when you talk about these bots and you talk about um, the automation process and you know like you said the companies that approach you like let me quadruple your monthly revenue with 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 digital marketing <laughs> i know you love those guys yeah, with my crystal ball yeah i still think that the value behind your digital assets lies in how engaged people are as opposed to like how many people you have yeah, engagement is key, but it's, you know, it's like you said, it's a means of communication. Yeah. So there's many ways to communicate with these tools, mm -hmm. but just the internet, it is a place where people are allowed to create characters. It's so much harder to do that in real life. Than to just be to yourself. Face. You have to be yourself in real life. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you're looking create somebody in the eye. I mean, you can do it a little bit, but a person like me, I'm going to know. I'm, I'm going to have to talk to you. I just walk Absolutely. in the room and know. Yeah. Um, so I just think that the value is not 
it's you can't have one or the other. And I'll give a really good example. Um, because of the authenticity of our brand and because of the way we communicate, even by using the internet, the authenticity that we have and the honesty um, and I guess the passion and the sincerity that we have behind our brand and what we do and the way we talk and interact with our customers, regardless of whether it's face-to-face or via email, or even if I send an automated email, the style and the way that we do these things um, is very, it's very truthful and it's very open. My customers, they can speak to me all the time. Like every customer in the history of eight and nine has gotten a personal email from me. I didn't write the fucking email, but I respond to all of them. Mm -hmm. So if I send out an automated email to somebody they respond to me, yes, now I'm engaged, now I'm going to communicate back with you. Yeah. But what I was going to say is that, I mean, 100, 200, 300, I have probably 500 customers that would like punch you in your face if you said fuck you to me in front of them. Mm-hmm. You cannot get that type of loyalty and support and commitment from a customer via the internet. You can't get that from social media. This is real shit. Like these people are are friends of ours. They feel like they're part of our family. And you you just can't get that by doing like quote unquote digital marketing. Like you have to communicate. Yeah. You really have to be a human with these people. Um, it seems like that means a lot to you, having that relationship with your customers. I think so because isn't that what branding is about? Isn't that what building a brand is all about? The best definition I heard of a brand is. Your brand is not your logo. Your brand is not your font. The brand is exactly what somebody feels when they like hear or see your company. Right. And that's for, what a brand is. Streetwear as a whole, um, you know, we talked earlier about like Diamond Supply, the hundreds and, yeah. and these crooks and castles, like these brands that, you know, I don't want to say they were before us because we've been doing this for a very long time. But these, you know, companies that came from LA, they were able to build community amongst themselves that propelled them to create this thing which is you know known in the mainstream as streetwear um so they worked together you know and as a collective they were able to gain more strength and like really build but there was a time in the mid-2000s probably where you go to the club in miami and you see somebody wearing the atom bomb shirt that you kind of would give them a nod because you know that that guy wearing that hundred shirt had to go to a very specific store who had to have a very specific train of thought when they were buying merchandise for their store and the kid that works there is going to be wearing, you know, Jordan 1s and, you know, whatever. In Miami, might have like a Cuban link chain or whatever. There's so many <laughs> different things that were attached to just seeing that logo. So even if you weren't a fan of the hundreds because you preferred Crooks and Castles, it was still part of a community of people that knew what's up. It was a tribe. Yeah, because you had, exactly. It was a tribe. And that tribe had to discover product. And there's something that, is a really easy way to see the difference. You could not buy the hundreds in the mall, period. So if you want a Crooks and Castles account and you're a retailer and your store's in the mall, they're not going to give you the account because there's no discovery by getting dropped off at the mall by your mom. So you have to work with boutiques that tell your story. And at that time, because these brands were distributing their product to stores that could carry forward that story, it built a tribe. And then eight and nine, had a very, very, you know, similar thing because we were more, I would say, street than any of the streetwear brands. Yeah, I think so too. A lot of the streetwear brands were, they, you know, streetwear that to them is like a real merger of like skate, surf, yeah. and some type of hip hop. Yeah. For us, it's really what you do in the streets. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit different. And of, of course, like, you know, you know how like hardcore skate is. 
hardcore skate is very similar to you know hip hop in that sense. Very and, uh, similar. So that's kind of where 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 we come from and the mindset that we design from. But anyway, it's I've been in the club wearing a fucking eighty nine shirt and some dude I've I have no clue who the fuck this dude is like comes and says what's up to me just because of my shirt. And he doesn't know who I am or whatever That's it so is. It's so funny you say that because anytime I walk down the street and I see somebody wearing an 8 and 9 shirt, I always go right up to him. Right. And a lot of our customers do that because yeah. it's because of what we stand for. So when somebody's wearing that, it's like... It means it, something. Yeah. It's like if you're out in the ocean and there's a bunch of cruise ships and a pirate ship comes along and you're in a pirate ship, you're like, hey, what's up, pirate? <laughs> So it's just it's just a differentiation. I was wondering where you were going with that. And that is like um, such a great analogy. But no, it's just because it's that flag, you know. It's the yeah. and, and that flag means something. Um, and to the people that don't want to be victims of the pirates, they are also wary of the flag. Yes. Um. So I, I think for us, because we've we've been out there and building our brand, you know, hand to hand, face to face, we have, I guess, a tribe, um, of loyalists that understand when somebody else is also wearing 89 even if you don't know each other there's a commonality and there's a very high probability that you guys have similar ways of thinking and we like to think that we stand for you know what we call real shit um you know whatever take care of your family you know do the right thing Mm -hmm. you know be honest be humble like all the different things that that we think and that we operate our business you know based on our customers are the same way i want I want to take a couple minutes to tap into some more technical questions because you and I, again, have had this conversation a lot. A lot of times when young entrepreneurs think about starting a business, one of the first things they think about is starting an apparel line. It's kind of like an easy uh, entry uh, into being a, a business owner. And these days, I'm not so sure if that is like the thing to do anymore just because the market is so volatile and because things change so quickly in the apparel line what i guess i guess where i'm going with that is if somebody asked you where to start and i'm not saying like what's your best piece of advice you know because i think you've probably been asked that question a million times i'm talking about like real practical like start here if they wanted to create some designs if they wanted to if they wanted to create a brand Where's the place to start? The first place to start in the in the clothing business is to come to grips with the fact that the business sucks. I'm. It's so refreshing to hear you say that, man. Because, yeah, it's it's tough. It's very difficult. The problem with the apparel line, with the apparel industry, is that there's just so many dominant players that in order to even get like a tiny, tiny piece of the pie, you have to make some real waves. You do, and to make one wave, there's so many moving parts and so many components that you have to master to even make a ripple that then becomes a wave. Yeah. So you have to do so many different things and have different types of talent on your team. Like there's just so many things you have to do to even you know get the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. And then in apparel, whether you like it or not, you have to reinvent yourself between four All to eight time. times a year. All the time. And you know, think about selling uh, true religion jeans. You got true religion, then, you know, whatever. That's a wide leg jean with a flare at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Then you have, you know, Robin jeans that have crystals all over the pocket. Then you have embellished denim that has moto on it. Like, all of these jeans have a different style. All of them come and go. 
at best, you get like a three to five year run. At best. I was but guess two what? Years. The guy who made the fucking zipper is rich. Because he's on all of them. Right. Be the zipper. Okay. That's how I would say <laughs> about the apparel business. Um, so I think it, it's something that's it's easy to get into. And with technology, the, the barrier to entry is so low now. And then the definition of success is so low. So my advice to anybody who's getting in, in the apparel business, I think, would be um, to treat it like a hustle and almost treat it like gambling. Like, don't spend any money that you're not willing to use uh, to lose. To lose. Um, and then test it, build it. Um, and I always tell everybody, like, if you want to start a clothing line, start with the people that are around you. Identify the need, figure out what's missing from their, you know, wardrobe or what message that they would want to send and give them that. Give them the mechanism to say something about themselves. Um, whatever that is, you know, I'm grungy, I'm smart, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, and if you can get that thing that the people around you want to project or want to be known for or want to stand for, if you can tap into that idea and you can give them a way to spread that idea in that way as your apparel, you're going to find success. What scale of success is like to be determined. Sure. But that's the bottom line. You have to really identify what is your brand doing for the person that's going to buy it. I completely 100% agree. And I agree because that aligns with my own personal experience. You basically taught me most everything I know about having my own apparel line. And granted, I'm really, really a lot smaller than you. Um, I don't know, probably like a hundredth of the size. However, I've always seen my line as a success because I've been able to do that. There's a real specific person that has a real specific message to say. And I think that New Life is really the the, the top dog in terms of apparel in uh, creating that message and putting a brand behind it. And so anytime I start to second guess myself on like whether I'm going the right way, I always come back to the advice that you gave me about uh, about just knowing your customer. You've always been really, really into that. Like know exactly who it is that you're trying to sell to because you can't sell to everybody. It's just not a feasible thing. Like brand, a brand within itself is something that I feel like needs to speak to a specific person. And at least with the story that you have just said, the message was always about tribe, right? So I've, I've tried to really create a tribe in new life. And, and just a, a, an interesting statistic about what you just said, I got a message from uh, Shopify, which is the platform that I have uh, new life clothing on. And it said that I'm the 90th percentile of other businesses that started my website within the same time. And that's crazy because I sell like three, four t-shirts a day. So just think of all the companies, e-commerce companies, and most of them are probably apparel in one way or another that just come and just as quickly go. I think that... That email is proof that Shopify is on the LA Fitness business model. They totally are. So in that email out. is proof. Three shirts a day, you're in the top 90%. That means that 90% of the people are doing worse than you. Yeah. And I bet you 70% of those have never even sold active. anything. They're not doing yeah. shit. They just have a site. They pay their twenty nine ninety a month because they want to feel like an entrepreneur. I agree. Just like they don't want to cancel their gym membership over 10 bucks. I agree. It's fucking amazing. God bless Shopify. So let's say something positive that about the internet. That stock's been killing it for me. Oh, God bless it. Um, let's say something positive about the internet. So what you just said, you know, we're kind of talking about 
the tribe and you know standing for something and then if you know advice if you're going to have a clothing line the the great thing about the internet is when you find that thing that you the message the contagious idea and that idea doesn't have to be literal it doesn't have to be text or copy on a shirt but when you give your customer the ability to say something about themselves preferably that is supporting or defining their identity i am an entrepreneur i am fit I am a stoner, whatever that is, when you give them the ability to say that, they're going to keep coming back to you over and over and over because it's easy to wear a shirt that has a message. Think about it. If you're from New York City and you're a Yankees fan and you're going to Florida, what's the first thing you pack? <laughs> Your Yankees hat. The end. <laughs> Without question. Period. Yeah. So. You have to wear your Yankee hat when you go to Florida so that people know that you, anything's like the FDNY, for example, a certain type of yes. person wears an FDNY hat. Um, so anyway, when you give the customer the ability to say something about themselves, they're going to come back and that's how you grow your business. So the power of the internet is that you can find many, 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 many people very quickly that also want to say the same things about themselves. And then once you locate those people via social media, then if you communicate with them in an authentic manner so that they can see that they're like you, now you have a fucking business. So you can, re you can get this idea, put it on clothes, reach the people that think similarly, make sure you don't tie up a lot of money in inventory, let these people buy it, and then give them new stuff that gives the same message. And like Ryan Leslie, kid's super smart, um, He's like a producer for Bad Boy, like was behind the career of Cassie. Cassie was like his girlfriend. Diddy stole his girlfriend and then get, kicked him out of here. But anyway, the kid got like a 1600 on his SATs and went to Harvard. Wow. And uh, he's fucking brilliant. And he always talks about, you know, just the 100,000 fans. And he actually created an app. I think it's called Superphone, where he's been for two years or three years. Like this is way ahead of its time. He's been speaking to his fans directly from his phone and he, they're not calling like his personal phone number you know but like it's like a google voice number basically going to his phone but the crazy thing about the technology is that it's rating all his fans so he has say you know whatever a hundred thousand fans but three thousand of them are super fans those three thousand people when they text him he sees that notification wow. so he'll have push notifications on for example for his you know top one thousand fans but his other 99 you know 99,000 fans can still talk to him all through this thing. So point is, you don't need that many fans to have a successful business and you can reach like-minded people very easily through the internet. It's just, that's a technology to be able to communicate with them. So yeah, if you're gonna do a clothing line, I would say make sure you know exactly what you're allowing your customer to say about themselves and then go find more people, the, you know, the multiplicity of that guy. Go find him through every way possible. Um, keep it super niche because that's that's the way to do it. Um, I agree. Because not everybody wants to say the same things about themselves. Yeah. So I guess I'm being redundant, you know. Um, but I fucking a guy, a friend of mine just told me a story yesterday about a guy from Tennessee that he was listening to on a podcast that's making six million dollars a year off a screen print shop. Wow. Three million of it comes from a subscription model. And me, I'm a hater. I'm like fucking subscription model. This shit is dead. It's trash. And uh, no, it's not true. This guy sells nine ninety nine subscription model. You get one T-shirt every month. And that's it. Yeah, but guess what? His fucking subscription is about Tennessee. 
So, so every all month, people from Tennessee, dude. You, every month you get a fucking shirt from for this like Tennessee themed, and obviously that probably wouldn't work in Florida because like even just with sports, you know, there's so many different sports teams. You can't be FSU and Gators, like. Yeah, but the whatever. point you're saying is that it's a tribe. That's all he's doing. Yeah, he's making something Tennessee. very simple. This motherfucker has thirty thousand subscribers <laughs> wow. to his nine ninety nine a month T shirt subscription, and he owns the screen print shop. There's no way in hell that shirt is costing him two bucks. There's yeah. no way. So he's got you know eight dollars profit times thirty thousand subscribers per month. Wow! What is that math? I don't know. It's a lot of fucking it's a lot. money. It's two hundred forty thousand a month profit off a t-shirt subscription model. But the yeah, point Seth is, Godin would call that the idea virus. Yeah. Yeah. It's a. If if you're interested in that kind of stuff, Seth Godin is like a real genius. I'm actually taking this course on him, and uh, yeah, he would call it the idea virus, where you just have this idea and then you just drop it into your tribe and then the tribe spreads it amongst themselves it's kind of like a horizontal marketing vertical where you don't start at the top with like a marketing budget and then you spend that money on media and then you scale that media through advertising and then you get more money and then it goes back up to the top you literally just take the whole entire thing and you drop it into your audience and your audience spreads the message for you horizontally that's really great and that's very true Mm -hmm. and that's how this works how do you get the audience well, I think that's the million dollar question, right? Right. You know, we, every time we get into these conversations, you and I can kind of talk back and forth for, for probably hours. Um, I do want to touch on one more thing because I think it's very, very important. And I always admire the fact that you don't talk about it super openly because you don't use it as like a, uh, a way to show the world like how great you are. But please tell everybody about Change the Play Tell them the mission behind it. Tell them what, what you're trying to do and why you think it's so important. Change the play is actually amazing. And I don't talk about it enough because we're still, we're like a veal. <laughs> we're just a little baby with wobbly legs. You know, we've been caged up and we're, we're ready to, to kind of grow. Um, but Change the Play, it's a, it's a charitable nonprofit. We are based in New England. My sales manager, Jason Teal, um, is the person that started it he's the founder of change the play and he really he's the president of NAACP chapter he's just a very you know outspoken vocal involved principle oriented guy and um him and I him and I have a great relationship he's been in the trenches with me um you know building this business to where it is now um and it was a it was it was amazing that he was he that he built this organization to a point where I could just get involved and be you know kind of a vice president or a program director, um, and it was re- really humble and small. I think when I got involved, you know, maybe a budget of like twenty thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars, but it was just his the motivation that he had to create a nonprofit that would, at the root of it, build people up um, through different ways than you traditionally get in school or in community. So I guess to answer your question very directly, Change the Play is a nonprofit. The main thing that we do is we teach entrepreneurship through music and fashion to high school students, many of which are at risk, yeah. many of which are completely disengaged. Um, we have programs you know, with uh, you know, the DYS and we are operating in prisons now. Um, so basically what we're doing is we're teaching a curriculum that shows people from industry professionals 
a practical way to start their own businesses or to just be go-getters even in their career. Um, but we're we're really giving you know education to the kids that they cannot get from their high school teachers because high school teachers you know just in education by default you are an educator and especially public education right well yeah definitely and, it, and even when you when you get to college you start having professionals that have become professors yeah but in high school it's not like that in yeah. elementary school it's not like that you just get a guy that's a teacher so what experience does he have he may or may not have any and then in 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 these in a lot of the schools that we operated you know they just don't have budgets they're I mean, we've been in classes that don't have heat. We were in we were in a school of eighteen hundred kids that had one fucking projector. Wow! The whole fucking school, the one, one projector. projector. They got to sign out a projector a fucking week in advance, and then you go a mile down the road. We're teaching another school that has every classroom has a nine foot smart board. So how the fuck is a kid who has a nine foot smart board and an iPad in every class supposed to get the same education as a kid who's going to school with one fucking projector? Yeah, it's impossible. So aside from America being fucked up, that's a whole other tangent that we, we can get on. Um, change of play, it's it's really us just kind of servicing the needs that we've identified. So we teach the music um, program for the kids that are really, really you know tough. These kids are making a choice. They come to our after-school program and learn how to make beats and record music. or they So go they come there voluntarily? In that particular case. Okay. So we have it set up in a way that depending on the level of the engagement, we have various programs. Yeah. So at the lowest level for the most at-risk kid, we run a music program that allows them to get you know their hands on technology and be able to make and record music and then... For the couple kids in each group, then we follow them through the marketing. You know, we help them with you know Spotify and just different ways they can get their music out there and monetize sure. it. Um, and that's really an after-school program for kids that would otherwise be hustling. So we bring them in through the music. Then we have another level where you know, in a better school, the kids are you know more engaged. They have more educated. Um, we combine that with apparel. So we'll show them how to monetize a contagious idea. And I can't give away all the secrets, but yeah. the bottom line is they come up with a concept, they cr- something that's contagious, like we just talked about with the apparel. Yep. What is that message? How are you spreading it? Um, you know, Chance the Rapper, for example, Courage Tour. That's a contagious idea. People that want to be courageous, it says something very clear. Be brave. Stand up. Don't be scared to you know, uh, be a principle-oriented person. So we take a, an idea like that. The kids create a song around it. We create, we create a song. The kids work with DJs and producers. They make the song. We create a t-shirt design that goes to support that same idea. Now the kids have music and they have clothing that they can go spread around to their peers. Um, We have a partnership with a store called Eblins, which is the largest retailer in New England. For the more advanced programs, the kids actually see it all the way through to retail. So we bring Eblins in. The kids get to present it to them. They get to do kind of a buy Eblins tells them what designs they like. You know, we hone them. The product eventually gets in the store and the kids do like an in-store event. Have you they... seen that? Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. That so, like kind of just gave me goosebumps. That's crazy. So you just brought like a kid from scratch to create his own content, his own design, go through the retailer process and actually have his shit in a store. Yeah, and then throw a fucking party where like his homies from the class are DJing. They perform their song. Oh, man. It's, it's unbelievable. So it, uh, and it, we don't even think of it like that because it's just like what we do. So- Thankfully, I've gone through all these struggles in the apparel business to the point now where, you know, I can help other people grow their brands. So they don't have to go through them same lessons. Yeah. and Because those lessons are super painful, by the way. They suck. Yeah, I know. And uh, we've been really fortunate, man, because Jason is just is just a, a beast. And he he's very diligent. Like when he wants to get something, 
So for us, like we were doing after school programs where it's optional. Well, then we started realizing this is cool, but we want to be in school. Yeah. So then we started refining our curriculum so that it would, you know, meet common core standards and be in line with what the, uh, what the hell is the guy's name? The, the school board or the, the who's above the principal? principal? Who's above the principal? Uh, I forget. <laughs> I'm the wrong guy uh, to talk about school. Okay. Yeah, the superintendent and the school board. <laughs> so that these guys can, you know, use our programs to meet meet their goals. So it's understanding what is, you know, what is a high school responsible based on state guidelines for delivering? Okay. Oh, well, they need to make sure that the kids are, you know, reading and writing better. Okay, great. Well, let's show them how to write blog content that drives traffic to a site. And now they can, you know, for example, we do the shirt with Eblins. Well, how do we get it in front of people that we don't know? Well, we can now figure out what the interests are of the Eblins customer. We can create content that would be engaging to them, whatever. If you know something simple like talking about the new Yeezys sure. or whatever it is, you know, you, you now you can create content. So the kids are writing blog articles. They're, you know, touching cameras. They're making videos. Um, but anyway, by us realizing what common core standards were with the state, we were able to create a curriculum that they would give us grants for to bring it into school. So last year we went from doing after school programs to actually being teachers. Wow. So right now we have four high school classes that Jason physically is teaching. And so he's in New England? Yeah, he's in, so the main program that we're working on right now is in New Haven, Connecticut. Okay. So in New Haven, we have two groups of entrepreneur classes. That's a city that needs that stuff too. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, they, it has a couple of nicknames um, <laughs> that aren't so positive. Um, but yeah, man, it's crazy because we've built a curriculum. We're in there teaching it. We're using industry professionals, real people that are most importantly relatable to the students. And the, the most profound thing is that, like, we don't have any of the problems that the instructors have. Mm -hmm. you, know, you come in there and the kids, you know, they might test you a little bit here and there, but you, they're excited that, to see you. you end that very quickly. And the kids understand who they're dealing with. So change the play.org. Changetheplay.org, yeah. We're just finally, like I said, man, we've been in the trenches so much that we've just been building our programs and yeah. trying to grow the budget and then execute more. And it's been like two and a half years. We didn't even have like a website. That's amazing, man. We don't talk. We just go do stuff. And now it's like to the point where like we've been doing so much, we got to slow down a little bit because we need to, you know, we need to grow our budget. So yeah. we're operating, you know, whatever, a couple hundred thousand dollar budget. Uh, but that needs to be millions so we can do this more and more and more and more. Um, and it's, it's interesting cause you posted a book from Ray Dalio the other day mm -hmm. and I didn't know anything about him, but one of the administrators for New Haven said to us, Hey guys, like Ray Dalio has a foundation that is putting bazillions he's in of Connecticut. dollars. He is. He's the richest guy in Connecticut. Yeah. I believe he's, I believe he's famous for being a hedge fund guy that has made more money for his investors than anybody else in the history of hedge funds ever. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's crazy. So anyway, he is a foundation that does, they want to do what we're doing. Um, and they're putting a lot of money into it, but they have this whole like economic model that shows for any kid, every kid you keep out of jail, you actually, and don't quote me on the numbers, but you actually put a positive impact on the state economy by like 120 grand a year. And it's, it's based on just how, a kid going to jail once compounds and the detriment that it causes and how much it costs us to put people in jail. And, and that doesn't surprise me because his whole organization is built upon like super, super detailed measurements of data. It, the data is insane. Yeah, that's how Bridgewater got so so famous and so uh, 
so successful because the whole thing is just based on crazy data, that, that which all sense. hedge funds are. But Ray Dalio was like a whole nother level. He built algorithms and shit that just make the decisions for you. So it's it's pretty incredible. If you I mean if you can get somehow connected with uh, some of that public funding, man, that'd be a big deal. They're they're serious, and so they they came to us and wanted us to submit for a grant that they were doing. It was huge, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, yeah. And then that would multiply over many many cities. But what they wanted was they wanted to take our model and be able to put it in any school at any time. And our program is so successful because of the people that are running the program. Yeah. So if you boil it down to a it's tough to cutter, duplicate that it loses. Absolutely. It loses the authenticity and then you can't necessarily keep the connection with the kids. Um, so the Dalio foundation was not a good fit for us at that particular time. But two years from now, when we've done this program a lot more and we've, you know, run a lot more classes and our curriculum is more developed, then it becomes. Yeah. So you're in a better position to be able to, like, replicate the curriculum, create an online version, yeah. which is now an instructor's manual for the teachers. Cool. So now you take the hip teacher from the school and let him run the entrepreneur class based on the curriculum that we put forward. And that's the point where, like, somebody like the Dalio Foundation could could help us grow. Um, but in the meantime, it's just us touching these kids, man, and we, we learn a lot from them, and we constantly, every every time we do a new program, we're just constantly looking at, you know, what worked in the last one, how can we make it better, how can we make it more engaging. Um, this year, we're actually going to roll out a change to play currency, so we're looking to get, you know, a, a real, you know, a, a financial partner involved, like somebody maybe like a credit union that has, you know, the be- the you know the benefit of teaching fiscal responsibility to young kids, so they can be customers later on down the line. That'd be so important. Um, yeah. So we're gonna do schools a don't to teach play. that shit at all. No, in general. It, it's fucking it's retarded. It makes yeah. no sense. So we're gonna do a change to play currency, which is gonna, I think for us, it's gonna change the game because the kids they love money, they want to make money, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna allow them to buy shares in the company with their change of play money. So basically everything you do in the class will be rewarded with money. You get an answer right, you might get a dollar. Do great on your blog, you might get $100. And then at the end of the program, you have this money now. You can buy studio time, real studio time, to wow. go record your album. Or you could buy shares in the company that we've built together, mm-hmm. and you can go get real money. So if you were to perform really well in the class, then you would have a lot of change of play money. You could buy equity in the brand that we've created, and then you would get a percentage of the sales that we've pushed through Edlands or pushed through, you know, the website. So it's great, man. I love us, it. That, well, I'm gonna put your face on a dollar or something. Yeah, please I mean, do. I mean, you're gonna That's be behind Obama. That's Obama's exactly going what I need for, sure. for my ego. Put my face on money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's 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 changed the play, man. We actually fell into a, a food program this summer because all of our high school kids they get meals during the school year, and you, it's it's really crazy. Some of Talking about like nutritional value stuff. I mean, forget the nutritional value and the fact that what some of these kids are eating, but just the fact that so many people don't eat outside of school. Wow, it's crazy. Like it's you know for for people you know like us that are you know at this point in our lives and they're fortunate and you know you can go to the grocery store. You don't even have to go to the grocery store to get it delivered to you. Like it's it's unbelievable how many kids like you know whatever fifty percent, eighty percent. You shouldn't have 80% of kids in a school that only eat at school. During school. It's fucking insane. So through that need that we identified, we we started seeing that these kids, like through, especially through the sports, like they come back to football camp and they they just haven't eaten well through the summer. Like, And you can't think if you don't eat. So 
It's Absolutely. crazy. So we, we actually created a food program this summer to feed the high school students throughout the whole summer. So we have locations. We have eight locations where kids can come. They can get a meal every day. And that was crazy because we had I had restaurant experience, but we had no experience doing a food program. So Jay knew a guy in Virginia that serves like three million meals a year. Like they're killing it. So we flew down to Virginia. We followed them, watched their operation. And then we went back to Connecticut and we partnered with the local church. So the church was gracious enough because their mission is to provide meals to the community. They gave us their kitchen. Wow. So we partnered with the church and we were able to create this food program on 60 days notice. So within 60 days, we got the idea, learned the ropes from a friend of Jay's, came back to Connecticut, submitted our application, and we served 7,500 meals in six weeks last incredible. summer. It was, it was amazing. It was a pain in the ass. Like, Yeah, but when it's all over, you just feel amazing. I, I truly, truly like, I know that we've talked about this before. I, I really want to get involved with that somehow. I don't know what we can do. Maybe we can talk afterwards. Maybe I can use, you know, some of the lessons that I've learned to add to some of the curriculum. Like if you guys, I, I don't know. Let, let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it afterwards, man. I, I really want to get involved with that. Well, we need help. And, you know, even like you said, it feels amazing. It's like, it doesn't feel that great because you look at you like 7,500 meals. And there's still so much work to do, you know, right? To do 75,000 meals. Yes. I'm I like, know that right, feeling. Cool, 7,500 meals. And that's great. But it's just so small. Yeah. And I'm I'm ambitious, so that thing is going to grow a lot. So we got our curriculum that we're we're doing really good work with. I think there's huge benefits for the kids, and then obviously it's something unique where we have partnership with Eblins, we have a new partnership with Champion, we have um, you know different corporate partners now that are getting marketing that they you can't market in a high school. Mm-hmm. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. We can do whatever we want. Like we have posters in the fucking cafeteria. Wow. So you know there's other opportunities that that come from this that we can now bring other people in and then you know in exchange obviously for resources um we're still so young man like this year alone we bought like five mac consoles we bought like two sets of turntables we bought three cameras like these are things that we're not supposed to be buying like nikon is supposed to send the cameras so that these kids can use them yeah um and we're just like i said we're so young and we're so focused on you know the educational aspect and building good programming that we haven't even been able to go get in-kind donations like we're using, you know, grants and our own resources and, you know, p- proceeds that we're getting from selling clothes to buy these type of things. So I think for us, we're going to grow very quickly um, once we can get our baseline done. So the website sure. is up now. It's changetheplay.org. Changetheplay.org. Yep. You can I'm going to really- link all this stuff in at the uh, the iTunes and also the bottom of the, the blog as well. That will be great. And we appreciate it. And it's Change the Play on Instagram. Like we don't, we don't post a lot. There's, um, you know some insight into what we do. We're, we're still trying to get the social media going. Um, but that's where we are, man. We've built a really, really good organization and now it's time to start talking about it and like spreading the word so that it can grow. Great. Um, and then just, you know, really try to, to get that budget going so we can, we can do more of this type of programming. And then obviously we're doing all this in new England. I'm not even there. So at some point this has to come to South Florida yeah. um, as a brand and as a company. And our team is so much stronger here that, you know, just with a little bit more time and effort, we'll be able to do even more than we've done in Connecticut. Um, and anytime we can, we can touch these kids and, and show them like a different way of looking at things and get them outside of the box that the school puts them in. It's, it's really great. So I appreciate you asking, man. And obviously I could talk about it forever. Um, but yeah, change the play. It's, it's really, really great. I'm definitely thankful to, uh, 
to be involved in it and watch it grow to be like a real you know business so to speak great man well once again thanks for taking the trip down here thank you for all the wisdom and advice that you've given me over the years thank you for all the conversations we've had i truly truly appreciate you as a person as a entrepreneur as a businessman but most mostly just like a, a human being i got tons of respect for you right thank you so much um if anybody wants to get in touch with ray it's ray at eight and nine.com did you not want me to put your email on there i guess it's too late I now talked to everybody. i already said it on the show <laughs> yeah. i talked to all my customers so buy uh, a shirt before you email me though instagram Fuck. is eight and nine and um and i'll link it all up on the show notes so one last time thank you to everybody that has uh left a rating on the itunes thank you to everybody that sent me emails personally for the kind words it really means a lot uh it's looking like already january is by far going to be the strongest month in terms of the amount of downloads i have so i really really appreciate the love right one more time thank you so much for coming out brother thank you so much bud thank you to everybody listening i appreciate you guys all right guys i'll talk to you next week